Welcome to the Paranormal Factor Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Wright. Thanks for stopping by. This is the place to explore mysteries, investigate the otherworldly, and share stories of the inexplicable and the strange. You see, within the realm of our daily, ordinary lives, there is a paranormal factor always waiting to reveal itself. So let's begin exploring together the truly weird. Welcome, listeners, and thanks for joining us on the Paranormal Factor Podcast. I'm excited you could join me for this new episode where we take a look at the awesome top three UFO cases from the Lone Star State. There have been many great UFO cases out of Texas, including, of course, the Lubbock Lights. But since we covered that one in Season 2, Episode 27, we'll skip it in this episode. But that still leaves us with three top cases to explore. Aurora, Level Land, and the Cash Landrum Encounter. But before we start, as a reminder, as usual, please be sure to take a look at the Paranormal Factor Podcast Facebook page. Every single day, Monday through Friday, there's new paranormal and supernatural material for you to check out. Fans of the show know it's the best place to find monsters, quizzes, film, TV, and book recommendations, and current paranormal news stories from around the world. Now, on to our episode. In the film Close Encounters of the Third Kind, there's a famous scene where a UFO makes the electronics in a truck go haywire. The real-life inspiration for that scene came from an incident in 1957, when dozens of citizens of Leveland, Texas, reported seeing a rocket and strange lights that interfered with their vehicles. People had engines quit, lights cut out. Not only were they confused, but they were also terrified when they saw a large skyborne craft flying overhead. When it departed, vehicles worked again. Though the police initially thought the reports were a hoax, they too saw the mysterious lights as they investigated the situation. Project Blue Book was assigned to investigate the case. Their findings? It was an electrical storm and ball lightning. They caused the lights and the mechanical malfunctions, despite the fact there was no reported thunderstorms in the area that night. Well, that's just one of the three cases. But before we discuss the Leveland sightings, we begin our top three in Aurora, Texas, way back in 1897. Number three, Aurora Airship. Aurora, Texas is a quiet town in Wise County. The city's about six square miles in area with a population of about 1,700. It's located about 27 miles northwest of Fort Worth. The Aurora, Texas UFO incident reportedly occurred on April the 17th, 1897. As the story goes, an unidentified flying object and its pilot crashed into a windmill 50 years before the famed Roswell, New Mexico UFO crash. According to a contemporary newspaper account, the UFO crashed on a farm outside of Aurora, resulting in the death of the extraterrestrial pilot. Supposedly, the alien was buried in the Aurora Cemetery. During the last two decades of the 19th century, there were reports from around the world of mysterious airships. In the United States, numerous newspaper accounts of airship sightings were published in late 1896 and early 1897. But one crashing with an alien occupant? Well, that was news. According to legend, the story goes like this. 
In the early morning on April 17, 1897, the alien UFO allegedly smashed into a windmill belonging to Judge J.S. Proctor. The pilot, from Mars, people thought at the time, was allegedly buried with Christian rites at the nearby Aurora Cemetery. A cigar-shaped vessel was seen in Greenville a few nights before by a man out for a midnight stroll, who said he was dazzled by the light and frightened almost out of his senses. A day later, the much-talked-of airship was in Collin County, where it almost caused the destruction of Plano's large two-story public school building. A Judge Love of Wakahatchee told a reporter he not only saw the airship, but he also talked to its crew. According to Love, they were visitors from the North Pole. An airship, supposedly the aforementioned cigar-shaped craft, was seen falling from the sky the next morning, crashing through the windmill and exploding. One story in the paper that day would, over the coming decades, inspire more believers than any other. Under the headline, A Windmill Demolishes It. S.E. Hayden related how the airship sailed directly over the public square. The craft suddenly appeared over Aurora at about 6 a.m. local time. The airship, which has been sailing through the country, was much nearer the earth than ever before, and evidently some of the machinery was out of order. The ship subsequently collided with the tower of Judge J.S. Proctor's windmill and went to pieces with a terrific explosion, scattering debris over several acres. Its pilot was killed, and the remains of the airship's lone occupant were disfigured. The pilot was described as badly disfigured but recognizably non-human. Hayden wrote, Mr. J.W. Weems, the United States Signal Service officer at this place, and an authority on astronomy, gives it as his opinion that the pilot was a native of the planet Mars. Papers found on his person, evidently the record of his travels, were written in some unknown hieroglyphics and cannot be deciphered. The ship was too badly wrecked to form any conclusion as to its construction or motive power. It was built by an unknown metal, resembling somewhat a mixture of aluminum and silver and must have weighed several tons. The town is full of people today who are viewing the wreck and gathering specimens of the strange metal from the debris. The pilot's funeral will take place at noon tomorrow. The alien was supposedly buried at the Aurora Cemetery nearby. Reportedly, some wreckage from the crash was dumped into a well under the windmill, and some was buried with the pilot. A Texas Historical Commission marker posted outside of the Aurora Cemetery mentions the UFO incident, characterizing it as a legend. Articles were written about it in local papers. The alien was given a Christian burial in the town cemetery. The townspeople even gave the alien the name Ned. Ned the Alien. In 1973, the Mutual UFO Network, MUFON, uncovered two new eyewitnesses to the crash. Mary Evans, who was 15 at the time, stated her parents went to the crash site and she recounted the discovery of the alien body. Charlie Stevens, who was 10 years old in 1897, described seeing the airship trailing smoke as it headed north toward Aurora. He wanted to see where it went, but his father told him to stay and finish his chores. Stevens' father went to town the next day and did see wreckage from the craft. MUFON then investigated the Aurora Cemetery and uncovered a grave marker that appeared to have a flying saucer of some sort on it. Metal was detected in the ground as well. MUFON asked for permission to exhume the site, but the cemetery association declined to grant it. 
Under Texas law, because of the Christian burial, the grave cannot be exhumed for official investigation without permission from next of kin. And that permission seems unlikely if Ned was indeed not of this planet. Later, the marker mysteriously disappeared from the cemetery and a three-inch pipe was placed into the ground. MUFON's metal detector no longer picked up readings from the grave, leading MUFON to conclude the metal previously detected had been removed. Still, that doesn't stop people from trying to solve the mystery. They've brought in ground radar, says Aurora City Councilman Jason Priakos. They've looked at the gravesite and they've gone to other parts of the cemetery and they can confirm something is buried. There are lots of theories about what happened back in 1897. There still are. Some thought it was a man-made dirigible that crashed. Others called it a hoax. Some at the time saw it as a sign of the Judgment Day approaching. But maybe some of the original witnesses had it right. It was Ned the alien, who was simply trying to right a plummeting craft, keep it airborne, and just ran out of time. Number 2. Leveland UFO The Leveland UFO case occurred on November the 2nd and 3rd, in 1957, four miles west of the small town of Leveland, Texas. Leveland, which in 1957 had a population of about 10,000, is located west of Lubbock on the flat prairie of the Texas South Plains. The case is considered by ufologists to be one of the most impressive in UFO history, mainly because of the large number of witnesses involved over a relatively short period of time, and for some very specific effects that were experienced by those witnesses. On the evening of November the 2nd, 1957, two farm workers, Pedro Sacedo and Joe Salas, called the Leveland Police Department to report a UFO sighting. Sacedo told police officer A.J. Fowler, who was working the night desk at the police station, that they had been driving four miles west of Leveland when they saw a blue flash of light near the road. They claimed their truck's engine died and a rocket-shaped object rose up and approached the truck. According to Sacedo, I jumped out of the truck and hit the dirt because I was afraid. I called to Joe, but he didn't get out. The thing passed directly over my truck with a great sound and rush of wind. It sounded like thunder and my truck rocked from the flash. Oh, I felt a lot of heat. As the object moved away, the truck's engine restarted and worked normally. Believing the story to be a joke, Fowler ignored it. An hour later, motorist Jim Wheeler reported a brilliantly lit egg-shaped object about 200 feet long that was sitting in the road, four miles east of Leveland, blocking his path. He claimed his vehicle died and he got out of his car. The object took off and its lights went out. As it moved away, Wheeler's car restarted and worked normally. At 10.55, a married couple driving northeast of Leveland reported that they saw a bright flash of light moving across the sky, and their headlights and radio died for three seconds. Five minutes later, Jose Alvarez claimed he met a strange object sitting on the road 11 miles north of Leveland, and his vehicle's engine died until the object departed. At 12.05 a.m., now on November the 3rd, a Texas Technological College student named Newell Wright was surprised when, driving 10 miles east of Leveland, his car engine began to sputter. The amateur on the dash jumped to discharge and then back to normal, and the motor started cutting out like it was out of gas. The car rolled to a stop. 
Then the headlights dimmed, and several seconds later went out. When he got out to check on the problem, he saw a 100-foot-long egg-shaped object sitting in the road. It took off, and his engine started running again. Well, at 12.15 a.m., Officer Fowler received another call, this time from a farmer named Frank Williams who claimed he had encountered a brightly glowing object sitting in the road. As his car approached it, its lights went out and its motor stopped. The object flew away and his car's lights and motor started working again. Other callers were Ronald Martin at 12.45 a.m. and James Long at 1.15 a.m. and they both reported seeing a brightly lit object sitting in the road in front of them. They also claimed that their engines and headlights died until the object flew away. By this time, several Leveland police officers were investigating reports. Among them was Sheriff Weir Clem and his deputy, who saw a brilliant red object moving across the sky at 1.30 a.m. At 1.45 a.m., Leveland's fire chief, Ray Jones, also saw an object, and his vehicle's lights and engine sputtered. The reports apparently ended soon after. When all was said and done, a clear picture began to emerge. A large bright object appeared to hover above or actually set down on several different roads outside of town, causing cars to lose power and shut off. The object was described as egg or oval-shaped by some. Others said it was more like the shape of a torpedo or rocket. All the eyewitnesses reported the object was very bright. It was described as orange or blue to green. Some described it like a fireball. During the night of November the 2nd and 3rd, the Leveland Police Department received a total of 15 UFO-related reports, and Officer Fowler noted that everybody who called was very excited. Well, with so many eyewitnesses and the similarities of the reports, this is a very compelling case. Now, let's take a look at our number one Texas UFO case. Number one. The Cash-Landrum Incident, Dayton, Texas The Cash-Landrum Incident was an unidentified flying object sighting in 1980, which witnesses claimed was responsible for causing health and property damage. Uncharacteristically for such UFO reports, this resulted in civil court proceedings. The sighting is known as the Cash-Landrum or Piney Woods Incident. The people involved were Betty Cash, 51 at the time, her friend, Vicki Landrum, 57, and Vicki's seven-year-old grandson, Colby. On a cold, wet night in late December 1980, three Houston-area residents were driving home when they saw something that changed their lives forever. Cash, Landrum, and grandson Colby were driving on the evening of December 29, 1980, from New Caney to Dayton, down Farm to Market Road, 1960, which was then a two-lane blacktop road with dirt shoulders. Cash and Landrum were heading home after trying to go find a bingo game. As Cash would later tell Air Force investigators, well, we hadn't thought about it being a Monday night because we'd had so many holidays and we'd gone to Cleveland, Texas that night to play bingo. The bingo games were out since the two locations they tried were both closed for the holidays. They were now driving home to Dayton and Cash's Oldsmobile Cutlass after dining out. At about 9 p.m., they saw some lights above the trees. They at first thought it was an airplane heading for a nearby airport. A few minutes later, on the winding roads, they saw what they believed to be the same light as before, but now it was much closer and brighter. And then, 
The light became even brighter as it got closer still. Vicki Landrum said, You could see it through the trees. It started to get real close. Then I knew it wasn't a plane. Landrum told Cash to stop the car, fearing they would be burned if they got closer. Cash said she was anxious and considered turning the car around, but abandoned the idea because the road was too narrow. She thought the car would get stuck on the dirt shoulders, which were soft from that evening's rains. So she stopped the car in the roadway. Betty Cash described what happened next. I thought, well, I've got to see what this is. So I got out, walked toward the front of the automobile, and I stood there looking up to try to figure out what this object was. Cash and Landrum said that they got out of the car to examine the object, but that Colby was terrified. And so Landrum said she quickly returned to the car to comfort him. Cash remained outside, captivated by the strange object. It was a diamond-shaped object, Cash said. Then at the bottom, flames were shooting out. The heat was tremendous. It just felt like I was burning from the inside out. When I reached for the door handle, the door handle was so hot I couldn't even begin to hold on to it, Cash said. Cash said she had to use her coat to protect her hand from being burned by the door handle when she finally got back in the car. When she touched the dashboard, Landrum claimed her hand pressed into the softened vinyl, leaving an imprint that was evident weeks later. Investigators cited it as proof of their account. However, no photograph of it exists. I was more than scared. The only thing I was thinking was, are we going to get out of here alive? said Cash. Meanwhile, they now clearly saw the object. It was silver and emitted a constant beeping sound. Blue lights ringed the center. Red and orange flames shot out of the bottom, flaring outward, creating the effect of a large cone. The object seemed to bounce up and down a few times. They said the object then ascended over the treetops and rose higher in the sky. And then a couple of helicopters approached it, surrounding it in a tight formation. Cash and Landrum counted 23 helicopters and later identified some of them as tandem rotor Boeing CH-47 Chinooks used by military forces worldwide. With the road now clear, Cash says she drove on, claiming to see glimpses of the object and the helicopters receding into the distance. The incident reportedly lasted about 20 minutes. Later, military authorities returned to the scene, but refused to talk to anyone who had seen the strange craft. The military denied having any helicopters chasing a UFO. After the UFO and helicopters left, Cash took the Landrums home, then retired for the evening. That night, however, they reportedly all experienced similar symptoms, though Cash to a greater degree. They claimed they suffered from nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, generalized weakness and a burning sensation in their eyes, feeling as though they were suffering from sunburn. Over the next few days, Cash said her symptoms worsened, with many large painful blisters forming on her skin. When taken to a hospital emergency room on January the 3rd, 1981, Cash could not walk and had lost large patches of skin and clumps of hair. She was released after 12 days, though her condition was not much better, and she later returned to the hospital for another 15 days. After her release from the hospital, Cash asked for help from UFO investigator John Schusler, a former NASA project manager. We had done several interviews with Becky and Vicki, and then we went out to the location where this happened. They were very clear on where it happened and how it happened. 
they told us exactly where along the road they stopped because there were markers that identified the spot, Schusler said. They were able to point out exactly where they saw the object coming down out of the sky, over the road, and hovering there. They were able to point out a spot on the road that indicated that it had been heated to an extreme level of heating. It was burned, and it was very clear to the naked eye. Several weeks after we went to the spot and saw this burned area, someone dug up the road and hauled it away and replaced it with new asphalt. Uh, some of the witnesses that watched this happen said people brought in unmarked trucks, dug up the road, put the material on the trucks, covered it with a tarpaulin, and drove away. Schusler also questioned everyone living within a five-mile radius of the area. At least ten other people had seen the object, and seven or eight other people had seen the helicopters, and their descriptions were all very similar to what Betty and Vicky described, he said. One eyewitness was police detective Lamar Walker, who was in the area on the night that Cash and Landrum encountered the object. Well, my wife uh, Marie and I were returning from her mother and dad's as we were coming out of some tree lines, I saw a helicopter. It was shining a spotlight at the ground, and then I heard the noise of other helicopters behind it, and I stopped the car because I didn't know what was going on. The helicopters were military, and they were all flying fairly low to the ground and all of them had search beams on. I thought maybe there was an airplane down, but they didn't hesitate. They kept going in the same direction, which would probably intersect the area where Vicky said her encounter was. These two witnesses did not report seeing a large diamond-shaped object. When Ken DeFore was with the helicopter division of the Houston Police Department in late December 1980, he remembered hearing of the report of a UFO near the city of Dayton. This was a widely publicized uh, UFO sighting, said DeFore. We received several calls in Houston as to whether or not we had helicopters up that night because 23 helicopters were seen escorting a UFO over Dayton. We did not have any helicopters in the air that night. In a 1985 HBO documentary, UFOs, What's Going On? Cash claimed she was treated for cancer after being exposed to the radioactive UFO. The Landrum's health was somewhat better, though both reportedly suffered from lingering weakness, skin sores, and hair loss. Cash later developed breast cancer and Landrum severe cataracts. A radiologist who examined the witness's medical records for MUFON wrote, We have strong evidence that these patients have suffered secondary damage due to ionizing radiation. It is also possible that there was an infrared component as well. However, although the symptoms were somewhat similar to those caused by ionizing radiation, the speed of onset was only consistent with a massive dose that would have meant certain death in a few days. Since all the victims lived for years after the incident, some suggest the cause of the symptoms was some kind of chemical contamination, likely by an aerosol. Cash and Landrum filed a lawsuit against the government asking for $20 million in damages. After years in courts, a U.S. district judge dismissed the case in 1986. It is one of the very few UFO cases to result in court proceedings. What did Betty Cash and Vicki and Colby Landrum see in the Texas sky on that winter night in 1980? John Schusler offered two explanations. Well, one is that it was an experimental craft of some kind, uh, probably from our government. The other, well... It was an unidentified flying object, possibly extraterrestrial. Vicki Landrum said, 
I don't believe in Little Green Men, and it had to be an object. It could have been a spacecraft that the government was carrying, but our government was carrying it. And what does the government say? The official position of the U.S. government is that no military or government operation occurred that night in that area. Betty Cash died on December 29, 1998, exactly 18 years after her claimed close encounter. Well, of these three cases, the Aurora incident in 1897 is easily the most speculative and the possibility of a hoax is highest in this case. The Leveland and Cash Landrum sightings are harder to explain, but that hasn't stopped skeptics from trying. So, what about Aurora? A brief Time magazine article on the Aurora incident published in 1979 noted that Hayden's tale was generally ridiculed at the time, and most citizens of Aurora still scoff. The article quoted 86-year-old Aurora resident Etta Pegas, who said that Hayden wrote it as a joke and to bring attention to Aurora. The railroad bypassed us, and the town was dying. Why, the judge never even had a windmill. Several people who lived in Aurora in 1897 later told Wise County historians there was no crash. If the pilot's papers with its hieroglyphic messages were kept, They've been long since lost to posterity. Even MUFON's final report states that the evidence is inconclusive. The possibility of a hoax cannot be ruled out. The TV show UFO Hunters examined the Aurora incident in November of 2008. Tim Oates, whose family owned for three generations the property where the crash site is located, allowed the investigators to unseal the well in which wreckage from the UFO had purportedly been buried. They found nothing significant except water with a high aluminum content, but otherwise normal. It was stated that any large pieces of metal had been removed from the well by a past owner of the property, but there's no evidence that that's true. The remains of a windmill base were found near the well site, contradicting statements in Time magazine that Proctor never had a windmill on his property. However, paranormal researcher Jerry Drake challenged UFO Hunter's interpretation in the April 12, 2020 episode of the Monster Talk podcast. He noted the well was clearly a bucket well of modern construction, estimated to be built sometime after 1940 and not a well designed for use with a windmill. And the Dallas Morning News at the time showed curiously little interest in following up on what, if true, would have been the biggest news story in human history. Another possibility? It could have been based on a real event involving an airship crash in the small town being misidentified as an otherworldly visitation. In that scenario, an actual earthly dirigible crashed, and the human pilot was tragically so disfigured he was identified as an alien. A plausible explanation. What about Leveland? Both the U.S. Air Force and UFO skeptics have described the incident as being caused by either ball lightning or a severe electrical storm. After interviewing three of the eyewitnesses, Sacedo, Wheeler, and Wright, and after learning that thunderstorms were present in the area earlier in the day, the Air Force investigator concluded that a severe electrical storm, most probably with ball lightning or St. Elmo's fire, was the major cause for the sightings and reported auto failures. Although the presence of such storms has been refuted, nor does it account for the size of the objects seen, both ball lightning and St. Elmo's fire are far smaller in size and quickly dissipate. 
and there's no known account of ball lightning or St. Elmo's fire causing automobile engines to stop. According to UFO historian Curtis Peebles, the Air Force found only three persons who had witnessed the blue light. There was no uniform description of the object. Donald H. Menzel, an astronomer at Harvard University and a prominent UFO skeptic, agreed with the Air Force explanation. He also argued that only the saucer proponents could have converted so trivial a series of events, a few stalled automobiles, balls of flame in the sky at the end of the thunderstorm, into a national mystery. Dr. J. Allen Hynek originally concurred with the Air Force Ball Lightning electrical storm explanation, but he would later dispute it and admit his agreement was too hasty. He argued there was no electrical storm in the area when the sightings occurred. He would also state, had I given it any thought whatsoever, I would soon have recognized the absence of any evidence that ball lightning can stop cars and put out headlights. What about the Cash Landrum case? In 1994, UFO skeptic Stuart Campbell suggested that the witnesses may have observed a mirage of Canopus. Canopus is the brightest star in the southern constellation of Carina and the second brightest star in the night sky. It lay exactly in line with the road, although it was 26 degrees below the horizon at that time and location. In 1998, journalist and UFO skeptic Philip J. Class found a few reasons to doubt the story by Cash and Landrum. When Schusler inspected Betty's car in early 1981 and used a Geiger counter to check for radioactivity, he found none. Presumably, he also checked for radioactivity when he visited the site of the alleged incident and found no abnormal radiation. Schusler provides no medical data on Betty's health prior to the UFO incident, nor does he provide any medical data on the prior health of Vicki or Colby. Similarly, skeptical British ufologist Peter Brooksmith writes, Skeptics have always asked a blunt and fundamental question. What was the trio's state of health before their alleged encounter? Brooksmith also wrote, To ufologists, the case is perhaps the most baffling and frustrating of modern times, for what started with solid evidence for a notoriously elusive phenomenon petered out in a maze of dead ends, denials, and perhaps even official deviousness. Once again, without physical evidence, we have circumstantial cases that are based mainly on eyewitness accounts. Our best possible chance was the possibility of physical evidence, including an alien body, coming out of Aurora. But as noted, nothing very compelling has ever been found in the small Texas town. Despite water samples and use of ground-penetrating radar, nothing was ever found or produced. But this isn't a court of law, and often the circumstantial testimony of UFO witnesses carry considerable weight. First-person accounts carry more weight, especially those of professionals like police, educators, and high-profile citizens with reputations to lose. So once again, we find ourselves on familiar ground and you are forced to decide whether you believe the witnesses or not. Do you believe they saw what they claim? Many do. In fact, these cases remain relevant even today due to the stories being retold, either directly or indirectly through the descendants of those involved, and even perhaps by those who refuse to let the stories die out. Dallas lawyer Stratton Hoare 
recalled something he saw while visiting Aurora Cemetery. There's a family, a father, mother, and three kids, a relatively young couple. The father was telling the kids the story of the crash, and this father and mother wanted their kids to know the story. He's passing it down. He wasn't correct in all the details, but he was firing up the kids' imagination. I thought that was fantastic. Well, in our next episode, we're traveling to California, the island of Alcatraz in San Francisco Bay to be exact. The island has a long history and was notorious for being home to the maximum security Alcatraz Federal Prison. And while it hosted the worst of the worst and baddest of the bad, it now accommodates plenty of ghosts who have taken up residence in the empty prison. We'll look into some of the more compelling ghost stories from the island. So join us as we take a look at Haunted Alcatraz next time on the Paranormal Factor Podcast. And now it's time for the episode quiz. Quiz time, everybody. Yeah. All right, let's get going here. UFOs flew over Washington, D.C. not once, but twice in what year? Was it A, 1947, B, 1952, C, 1959, or D, 1964? Once again, UFOs flew over Washington, D.C. They did, by the way. Not once, but twice. In what year? Was it 1947, 1952, 1959, or 1964? And the answer is... B. 1952. It was Saturday night, July 19, 1952, over 70 years ago, one of the most famous dates in a bizarre history of UFOs. The year when UFOs would buzz Washington, D.C., not once, but two separate times. Before the night was over, a pilot would report seeing unexplained objects. Radar at two local Air Force bases, Andrews and Bowling, would pick up the UFOs, and two Air Force F-94 jets would streak over Washington searching for the flying saucers. Then a week later, it would happen all over again. More UFOs on the radar screen, more jets scrambling over Washington. The story of jets chasing UFOs over the White House took center stage and the front page headlines for newspapers across America. Saucer outran jet, pilot reveals, read the banner headline in the Washington Post. Jets chase DC sky ghosts, cried the New York Daily News. Aerial what's-its buzz DC again, shouted the Washington Daily News. Events culminating that summer in Washington, D.C. had everyone on edge. Objects appearing over two weekends in a row over the United States Capitol of all places? Objects seen by military fighter pilots, commercial airline pilots, control tower professionals, and even people on the ground. Orders given to shoot them down, President Truman demanding answers. Air Force General John Sanford giving a much-publicized press conference in which he attributed the main confusion not to aliens from another world, but to weather. But few insiders in the military or intelligence community would believe that explanation. Neither did the CIA, which would get involved in trying to understand just what was going on. Well, welcome to the weird summer of 1952 and a UFO incident known as the Invasion of Washington. And if you want to learn more about this classic case, check out Season 2, Episode 34 of 
the Paranormal Factor Podcast. Well, that'll do it for this episode. A theme song is Knockers by Cinco, courtesy of Upbeat Music. Hey, before you leave, if you could, please do me just two favors. First of all, if you did enjoy the show, please leave a like on your favorite listening application. And secondly, if you liked what you heard, please spread the word. Love to have some new listeners out there to join you. I'm your host, Richard Wright. Keep your eyes open for the unusual folks, and thanks for stopping by.